Live from Cap Radio in Sacramento, this is Insight. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. 30 years. That's how long 89-year-old Californian Dianne Feinstein has served as senator. And despite questions about whether she will seek another six-year term, candidates are not waiting for that announcement. They're already lining up to make a run for that seat. It is widely expected that Senator Feinstein, a Democrat from San Francisco, will make her intentions known soon. But in the last few weeks, we have seen a few prominent Democrats already launch their bids. They include California Congressman Adam Schiff from Los Angeles, Congress Woman Katie Porter from the Orange County area, and there are more potentially waiting in the wings. So it's an interesting dynamic already, and it's really anyone's guess as to how this will shape up, who will step up and make a run, and if Senator Feinstein herself will call it a career or go for one more term. We have two guests to discuss Senator Feinstein's future and the future of the Senate seat. Melanie Mason is the national political correspondent for the Los Angeles Times, and Tal Copen is the deputy Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief for the Boston Globe. Thank you both for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having having us. Melanie, I want to start with you. As of today, we have two announced candidates, Congressman Adam Schiff, Congresswoman Katie Porter, both Democrats. Tell us how they differ politically. I think we can see in their initial pitches that they made to voters when they first launched their campaigns what their tactics are going to be. Because the truth is, is they're both Democrats. They both will vote probably pretty much the same way in the Senate. But what they're selling to voters um, is a different pitch. So Congressman Adam Schiff has really leaned into the fact that he was seen as this major antagonist to former President Trump, the impeachment hearings, the January 6 hearings. He's sort of um, centering himself as a uh, defender of democracy, as you will. Whereas Congresswoman Katie Porter is taking more of an anti-corruption sort of anti-corporate greed tactic, which is really something that she has established as her own persona in Congress over the last six years. So I think that we're going to be seeing two different sets of um, of priorities, perhaps, and to see where the voters are, are, are going to be drawn towards. Do they want more of the resistance era anti-Trump or they want to talk a little bit more about some of these economic concerns? Do you see Schiff using his role in the January 6th committee as well as the President Trump impeachment trial to leverage that? on a campaign on a national or statewide stage? Absolutely. Look at the video that he put out when he launched his campaign. The first minute is actually a montage of right-wing figures insulting him. I think it's the first campaign video I've ever seen, which is just, you know, Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity and former President Trump you know, calling him names, calling him little pencil neck. But I think that what he's trying to say is that these people despise me because I have been such a a pain in their side. And so I think that not only is this part of his uh, pitch as in terms of message, it's also his fundraising pitch. And remember, he is quite a fundraiser. He has $20 million in the bank as of the end of the year. And a lot of that is because he built up this national brand and got a lot of small donors from across the country to support him. Outside of Southern California, Congresswoman Katie Porter may be lesser known. I mean, for Northern Californians, how does she position herself to appeal to a broader electorate outside of her Southern California district? Well, her very first campaign stop was at the Rossmore Democratic Club, which is a gigantic Democratic Club in the East Bay. And so I do think that she is aware that she needs to expand her geographic reach. But she is another member of Congress who I think uh, is out of the uh, out of the ordinary when it comes to her persona. She was the third highest fundraiser in all of the House in the last cycle. And the only people who exceeded her were Nancy Pelosi and Kevin McCarthy, the leaders of the party. So she clearly has a uh, a brand that extends far beyond Orange County. I would be out walking with her um, Um, in districts um, when she was campaigning, both in the presidential race in 2020 and then for her own race last year. And I was shocked how many times when she would go to the door, people would just go, 
it's you. They recognize her from TV. They've seen her on cable news and late night. So I think she's actually quite well known, even though she's not a uh, NorCal native. Yeah. And, and these are just two, mind you. I mean, there could be more and there are other potential candidates that are being talked about from Representative Barbara Lee from Oakland, Ro Connor from the Fremont area. What are we hearing about their intentions since these two names are kind of bubbling to the top of the surface right now? And if they announce, how do you see the field shaping up? Congresswoman Lee has sort of all but announced she has told colleagues in the Congressional Black Caucus that she is uh, intending to to launch a campaign. They have announced that she has a committee to explore her campaign bid. And I think that a lot of people assume that she will be getting into the race, perhaps once Senator Feinstein actually makes her reelection plans known. Uh, and I think that what we see with Congressman Rokana is he has said that he's also interested in the post. But I think that he is also I in the field, realizing that if there is another progressive from the Bay Area um, in Congresswoman Lee, that that might actually fracture the progressive vote. So he has signaled that he might make his base his decision on what the entire field looks like. And I think Barbara Lee could be pretty influential there. And right now we're talking all about Democrats. Any GOP hopefuls for this seat? That's what I'm waiting to find out. You know, the Republican Party has had a hard time in California in recent years uh, fielding statewide candidates. But if the Republicans can find one candidate to coalesce around, you know, we do have this top two primary system. And it's very likely that Republicans can all coalesce, put, you know, put their votes behind one person while Democrats and Democratic leaning independents might fracture their votes. So we could very well see a Democrat versus Republican in the general. But the Republicans just have to kind of all get on the same page about who that Republican would be. And I think at this point, there aren't really any obvious names. Mm. And we're all talking about this at a time when Senator Feinstein has not made a form announcement yet. So when talking uh, to Congressman Adam Schiff, he actually publicly said that, you know, he informed Senator Feinstein of his bid for for her seat as a courtesy. Can we read anything into the senator's reaction to his candidacy? You know, so Congressman Schiff had said at the outset, you know, that he had told people that she had he had her blessing. And I think that her people close to Feinstein then kind of clarified that's not an endorsement, but that does mean she appreciated that he came to him, that he came to her in advance. And I think showed the deference to say that this is something that I plan to do. Look, I think all of the signs are there that Senator Feinstein will not be seeking reelection. She just filed a campaign finance report yesterday at the end of the year that showed that she had you know tens of thousands of dollars in the bank. I mean, that is not necessarily a haul that you would need for a statewide run. But there is just kind of this weirdness so far because there is this um, kind of awkward dance that's going on. The candidates can't just say, I'm here to succeed uh, Senator Feinstein because she hasn't said if she's running or not yet. And so we are sort of in this awkward period where I think the candidates, both Congressman Schiff and Congresswoman Porter, don't quite know how to talk about her because they can't talk about her as though she is capping off her career just yet. Well, let's talk about that timing and the strategy since it is an awkward time. Why are these candidacy announcements coming out now, at least two so far? It feels really early, um, at least to us political reporters who are exhausted. But the truth is, is that uh, California is a very expensive uh, place to run a race. And our primary is in March next year. So we are not looking at uh, an 18 month primary. We're looking at like a year and change, really. And if you're looking about thinking about what it takes to raise the money it, it is necessary to mount a statewide bid to introduce yourself to all of these voters, uh, you know, California is not necessarily a retail politics state, but you do need to travel. You do need to get around. 
I think that they are looking at the calendar and realizing that as much as they perhaps would like to um, show due deference to Senator Feinstein, at a certain point, they had to get the show on the road. And that's why we saw these announcements coming out uh, in the last month. So on the one hand, there's fundraising. Do you think it also maybe is to put a little pressure on the senator to actually make an announcement sooner rather than later? I think that that is done with the with the widest smile and the most you know delicate of gloves. Let's let's say that nobody wants to look like they are you know forcing out the senator who has occupied that seat for thirty years. But at the same time, I think that there has been in increasing years a lot of conversation about the senator's capacity to do the job. Tall and her role in, at the San Francisco Chronicle did some amazing reporting on this. Um, and I think that it is it has always been now the subtext in the last couple of years about Senator Feinstein and how how able she is to fulfill the job um, and how up for it, quite frankly. She's 89 years old. Um, and so, again, there nobody's going to want to look like they're shoving this esteemed Democrat out of the race. But I think that there is certainly some impatience. And I think that that was reflected in the timing. Yeah, I actually covered I think it was like the lone debate when she ran for reelection. And it was against like Kevin DeLeo. And it was like one of the most polite debates in broad daylight in the middle of a, of a workday in San Francisco. <laughs> so so I understand that that maybe that that pressure with, with a big smile and the deepest amount of, of respect. Okay, Tal, let's bring you in. Tal Copen is with the Boston Globe to discuss the current and longest serving senator in California, Diane Feinstein. Tal, what are you hearing from those in Washington? You're based in D.C. As to their expectations for Feinstein, do they expect her to return for another term or are they already preparing for her vacancy? I don't think anyone really expects her to run again. Um, but the strangeness of the situation is only she knows whether she's going to make a declaration and truly we don't know what it's going to be now um melanie said that she she had like tens of thousands that's not even true she has less than ten thousand in the bank of in her senate account and last night there was a new filing um the quarterly deadline and in the the last quarter of last year she raised less than $560 total, $558.91 is all she got in contributions. And I was just looking at it. It looks like just a handful of people who have like recurring act blue, you know, $10 donations or something set up to her Senate account. So there is absolutely no political indication she's running, no talk of her hiring campaign managers, absolutely no fundraising happening in, in pretty much the last year or more, uh, no maneuvering to get in the race. You also see her sending, the most generous way I can put it is mixed messages about when her timing will be. A reporter asked her a few weeks ago, she said, oh, I'm not going to declare this year. Meanwhile, the filing deadline is this year. Another reporter asked her, this week, and she said she'd, she'd announce a decision in springtime. So, you know, absolutely no indication of someone who is seriously preparing a run. At the same time, until she makes her intentions clear, she hasn't made her intentions clear. Is that kind of the standard or, or normal way for a potentially outgoing long-term congressman or to congress member to go out? Do, do they wait, you know, until, I don't know, the year that they should be running? Like if she said initially like 2024 and now it's springtime. I mean, this kind of back and forth. Well, it just really I don't know that there's one way to do it because each each state there are so many different like ways to orchestrate this. For example, Ben Sass just uh, he he represented you know Nebraska, I believe, and he just 
became uh, the executive of a public university in Florida. He didn't actually make his retirement official until this year began, even though he's stepping down immediately because the the outgoing governor of the state really wanted the seat and got appointed to, and he had to like th- wait for the new governor. I mean, that's just a very obscure example, but the point being that like every state, the outgoing senator will orchestrate their announcement sort of differently depending on the political dynamic. If if they want a particular person to take their seat, they might, you know, make these sort of calculations. Or for example, Diane Feinstein, not only does she have less than ten thousand dollars in the bank, she also has about five hundred thousand dollars that her campaign owes. If a senator that's that's not unusual. I feel like a lot of campaigns carry about a million dollars in debt and usually they fundraise to pay it off. But if, for example, a politician was really in debt, they might put off announcing retirements. They could fundraise to pay that off. I mean, there are all kinds of different factors that go to play. I will say there is nothing typical about what we're seeing with Senator Feinstein. I mean, as as Melanie alluded to, when I was at the San Francisco Chronicle uh, last year, I reported that uh, there are deep concerns about her short-term memory. I reported there was a member of Congress from California that she's known uh, and worked with for years who found themselves in a conversation with her where they repeatedly had to reintroduce themselves, not just the first time, but over the course of the conversation. Uh, We can't ignore that fact of these very real and documented concerns about her short-term memory when we talk about her capacity to enter this race, to be in this race, uh, to accurately reflect her own sort of calculations about this race. Yeah. In what way do you think that specific reporting that you did is impacting the race for Senate that we're seeing today? Well, no reporter wants to muse on on how their own reporting may have influenced others. But, you know, I, I think my reporting, I don't think surprised anyone in Washington who interacts with Feinstein on a regular basis. I was basically reporting on what they all had sort of known in private and making it clear to our constituents in California that this was the situation in Washington, because we felt it was very important as an accountability practice to her 40 million constituents in the state that there wasn't this sort of open secret in Washington. Journalists are not really in the business of keeping open secrets. Uh, it, 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 It was beholden upon us to make sure that her voters were well aware of the situation. But in Washington, this wasn't really a secret. Uh, if if anyone interacted with her, they had seen this with their own eyes. So, you know, when you talked about the timing of these announcements, I think Katie Porter certainly came out of the gate sooner than really others had expected, as we see Schiff needed some time to get into the race. Barbara Lee also seems to be taking a little bit of time to get into the race. Uh Porter, I think, made a calculation politically that the sooner she could get into it, the sooner she could kind of kick this off, perhaps she could have some sort of advantage in terms of a head start. Although in California, I mean, I just don't know that that's Mm. going to give her a huge edge, but she sort of broke the glass. But I, I have expected, regardless of Feinstein's decision, that there would be people challenging her because it doesn't seem like a winnable race for her even if she were to get in. And this seat, as as your listeners know, in California, these prime statewide seats don't come up very often. There is a huge bench of talent uh, politically that believes themselves worthy of these seats. When they do come up, they are 
highly contested. And so even if she hadn't made it an officially open seat, I think it was perceived as an open seat. And and that's why you see this sort of clamoring to get in that we're probably not even done with yet. Yeah. A once in a generation and certainly once in a career seat for for a lot of these people. Tall and Melanie, thank you so much for joining us. This is just the beginning of of a series of conversations we're probably going to have on this topic. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. Melanie Mason is the national political correspondent for The Los Angeles Times, and Tal Copin is the deputy Washington, D.C. bureau chief for The Boston Globe. You're listening to Insight on your NPR station, Cap Radio. I'm Vicki Gonzalez. You're listening to Insight here on Cap Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. Tyree Nichols will be remembered for the life he lived today. The 29-year-old called Sacramento home before moving to Tennessee, known as a free spirit who loved photography and a passion for skateboarding. Loved ones gathered at Regency Community Skate Park in North Natomas earlier this week, which was his home turf, and another memorial in Sacramento is scheduled this weekend. But today, the father of a four-year-old son will be laid to rest. A funeral in Memphis is scheduled to take place in about 30 minutes, a funeral that is also tied to activism and police brutality. The video of Tyree's violent beating by Memphis police last month following a traffic stop is now part of a chronicle of videos in recent years taken either from police body cameras or from bystanders with cell phones that show a deadly encounter with law enforcement. Multiple officers have since been charged with second-degree murder. Others have been relieved of duty, and emergency responders who arrived on scene have been fired. But once again, Again, the culture, the practices, and the policies of law enforcement are being called into question. In a few minutes, we'll be speaking with Keon Gilbert, an associate professor of public health and social justice at St. Louis University College and a fellow at the Brookings Institution. But joining us first is former Sacramento Police Chief Daniel Hahn, who is now the dean of the Public Safety Center at American River College. Good morning. Good morning. Well, I want to start with something that I personally grappled with. I talked about it with people who are journalists and also outside of journalism. That's the video of Tyree Nichols being brutally beaten by Memphis police, and he died in a hospital three days later. Did you watch the video, and do you think it's important for the public to watch the video? Yes, I did watch the video. And I think in terms of the public watching the video, I think at some point we will kind of moderate what we have now uh, come to be as normal as watching these videos. If you've seen that video, it's brutal. And I don't, I don't know that uh, um, everybody wants to or needs to see that. As we heard the mother say, she hasn't watched it. And I often think if something happened like that to one of my daughters, would I be able to watch it? And I don't think I would be able to. So Obviously, the family should have the opportunity to see it. And I do think in some cases, the family should be part of that decision making process if it goes wider to the general public. But um, but I'm sure as time goes on, we'll we'll kind of wade through those waters. Yeah. When having this conversation with another journalist, I mean, there's an important point that this video now that he has since deceased, this video is also his voice about what happened and and what unfolded. As someone with nearly four decades in law enforcement, you also educate about the racist and discriminatory practices that shape inequity in our community. You have a lived experience as a black man who dedicated a very significant portion of your life to law enforcement. How does that shape your understanding of what unfolded? 
Well, I think our experiences shape all of our understanding. So my understanding is growing up in Oak Park and witnessing violence, um, living in this world as a as a black man, and then spending, uh, you made it sound so long, four decades <laughs> in law enforcement, um, and the things that come along with being a black man in that environment. So, yeah, I think every single one of us, our, our belief system is heavily shaped by our experiences, and I wouldn't change my experiences for anything. I think growing up in Oak Park and being raised uh, by my mom are is the core of all my decisions, everything I've done throughout my entire life, both in work and personal. Did it surprise you that these police officers that are now charged with second degree murder beat him even though they knew it was being recorded on their body cameras? Um, in some ways, yes. In some ways, no. Uh, I, I think... Um, now that we've had body cameras for a while, and I think a lot of them were not wearing body cameras, by the way. So I think that's part of what needs to be looked at in, Mem- in Memphis for the specialty units. But um, I think they just become part of your uniform. So people eventually go back to being who they are. And clearly something about these five and, quite frankly, more than just the five that have been arrested uh, had I don't know if you want to call it defects, but character, serious character issues and morale issues to be able to just brutally uh, beat another human being like that. If there weren't body cameras, our understanding of what happened very well could have been completely different. I mean, we would have relied heavily on the officers' accounts of what happened, which contradicted the videos when we saw what happened. Now, these videos of deadly encounters, I mean, this this has really risen in recent years, from cell phone videos to body camera videos. What goes into corroborating and checking whether an officer's account is truthful? Well, the body cameras uh, help with that significantly. Uh, there's uh, not too many things better than actually being able to view it for yourself. And that's, that's also the benefit of releasing videos, certain videos to the public. So the public can view, be as close to being there as possible and be able to come to their own conclusions of how they feel about it. But it's the same inside a police department. Um, there's been many cases just around the country and even here in Sacramento where the, the body cameras were what enabled us to prove what actually happened. And unfortunately, in some case, cases, it wasn't what the officer said happened. Yeah. You and I have had this conversation when it comes to police recruitment. I've had these with with multiple other chiefs as well. Recruitment has been a challenge for many departments in recent years. Now, that's also coupled with a push for diversity in law enforcement as well, so that a department reflects the community that it serves. But the five officers charged in Tyree Nichols' death are all black. Are we looking at the benefit of having a diverse police department in the wrong way? Yeah, I think we we talk about this in the wrong way a lot. First of all, I think when it comes to these issues and other law enforcement related issues, we solely focus on law enforcement when the issue is much larger than just law enforcement. And so we're going to fall woefully short every time we solely say this is a law enforcement issue and therefore there's law enforcement solutions. Law enforcement has issues, no doubt about it. But this is a societal issue. We ask officers when crime goes up, we ask the police department every single time, go out there, crack down, get this crime down. And so we put people in those situations. And then we say, let's diversify our police departments. And a lot of times the way it feels to me is like diversify for diversity's sake. Like checking a box. It's like checking a box. And just because you're black doesn't mean you'll be a good police officer. And the other thing that we need to realize is in what 
uh, is why I did all the research and teach the classes that I teach is because we have to realize we, we race and bias are a part of this country and it's a big part of this country. And, and everybody in this country has similar has some of the same similar biases because we grew up in the same society. We're watching the same TV shows. We're seeing the same advertisement. We're hearing the same conversations. So, you know, if we solely focus on it's white officers versus black individuals and it's based on race and bias. And so therefore, we don't think a black person can do that. Black people have the same biases. Now, because uh, as black people, we grow up in the black community, oftentimes we see contradictory information to those biases. So our biases might be a little less, but we still have all those same biases. So if you are somebody that thinks that these things are solely happening because of race issues and bias, just hiring black officers doesn't mean that's going to be solved. Now, I personally believe it's due to multiple of things, not just any one thing. But um, yeah, uh, diversifying a police department is really to have diverse experiences in your police department. And just because you're black doesn't mean you'll be a good police officer. Yeah. And another issue are traffic stops. I mean, this isn't the first time that a traffic stop with someone who is unarmed, a a person of color, has been killed by police officers. And traffic stops are also a source of revenue for police departments and for for the city and the counties. Now, is there, is the incentive for traffic stops, does it run the risk of being abused? And what improvements, if any, do you think should be made? Well, anytime you have power and authority, there's a risk of, of abuse in any profession, not just law enforcement. So that, that's why you have supervision. That's why you have these checks and balances to try to ensure that those things doesn't happen. I would push back a little bit on uh, traffic stops are a source of revenue mm-hmm. for a police department because they are not. Uh, the police department doesn't get hardly any money from traffic stops. I could not tell you what the exact dollar amount because it's so minor. Um, traffic stops, you know, historically... You know, some departments, uh, you know, you might want to call it quotas or performance measures. It's a measure of how somebody stays active during their shift. Now, I think it's a very poor measure because it, it goes away from a mission of a police department if all you're focused on is the number of stops as opposed to the impact that you have on the community safety. So uh, there's a lot of discussion about traffic stops. Many cities, San Francisco, Seattle, L.A., are starting to put restrictions on their respective police departments at a city level to not be able to stop um, certain traffic violations that are minor, expired registration, broken taillights. Now, I think that the the intent behind that and the reason behind that is faulty. Um, most of what I hear is because there's bias in the police department, and so therefore their racism or their bias is, is being played out in traffic stops. Well, I'll tell you, just restricting their ability to do minor traffic stops does absolutely nothing to bias. It doesn't address it at all. There's no training. There's no experiential learning. There's none of that. And so that's one. And two, if I really am racist or if I really am biased and my intent is to stop a certain segment of drivers, I'll find a different reason. I I don't need that reason. So I think, yeah, it might provide a little bit of, uh, of relief. But if that's really the intent behind those, it's falling woefully short because, again, we're not looking at it holistically. And how do we address the root? And so if the root is bias, tell me how we are addressing that. You and I have had these conversations over the last five years with the shooting death of Stephon Clark, the murder of George Floyd, and now we're talking about Tyree Nichols. How has media coverage changed in your view, or has it? Well, I think there's bias in media coverage too. 
Um, if you think about, and does it differ between local and national outlets as well? Well, I think some of the national, you know, cable news are are maybe a little bit more biased, not necessarily race always, but just towards their agenda. Uh, I think maybe the local news is a little bit closer to the community, so um, maybe that's a little less. But I mean, if you just look at what's covered and how it's covered, uh, there's bias in the news, just like we should expect there is. There's bias in our entire society. There's no any corner of our society that is absent bias. And so if you think about, like, just take shootings in Sacramento, the shooting in on K Street Mall or the shooting two summers ago in old Sacramento, how much were those covered? How much did our political leaders respond to those? How much did they tweet and march and protest and, and have press conferences? Yet, Every month, there's way more people killed in places like Del Paso Heights than were killed that day on K Street Mall. And you don't hear anything from pretty much anybody. And it's a constant in, a, in some of our communities that people are losing their lives. And if I was to watch the media and watch the reaction of some of our leaders, I would come to the conclusion that those neighborhoods don't matter because we don't hear about those things in those neighborhoods. It's like they never happened. Hmm. Given that March will mark five years since the shooting death of Stephon Clark by Sacramento police, and you were the chief at that time, how has his death shaped you as a chief and also outside of your role in law enforcement as a person? Well, I think uh, that incident, unfortunately, uh, you, you know, in our country and probably around the world, a lot of tragedy is what kind of changes us and 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 hopefully moves us forward. So I always look at tragedies as if we don't learn something, if we don't progress from it, then it stays just a tragedy as, a, as opposed to a tragedy and something that changed things. And I think that uh, incident definitely changed not only our, re- our city and our police department, but around the world. Uh, there, these videos that we see now, like in Memphis, released within a couple of weeks, that was unheard of before Stefan Clark. Uh, we released that quickly and now it's become kind of the norm but that was the start of that how we deal at least in sacramento how we interact with families on the other side of that tragedy i think was greatly changed by the stefan clark incident and and i think that's a good thing if you think about the mother of tyree nichols praised the way the chief of police in memphis handled the aftermath and um I think that has been a huge change. I think five, 10 years ago, we might have ignored that family uh, with the tragedy that they were going through. So I think there's a, a, a lot of changes. I think body cameras help. But we have to understand that no one thing is going to uh, curtail this, stop this. And if you look at those videos in Memphis, I didn't see one supervisor anywhere in every minute of those videos. And you have a specialty unit that's charged with addressing violent crime that's clearly aggressive, that is going out in unmarked cars and is not responsible to the radio and to handling calls. And to think that that unit didn't have a supervisor working with them to ensure that they don't step over the line. And I might add, if anybody watches that video, as egregious and brutal and hard to watch as that was, that thinks that there's a high likelihood that that's the first time that they ever crossed the line with their force that they used on somebody, um, I would say they're living in, in a different world. And so that department better be looking at their past contacts, better be looking at body cameras and calls for service to see if they in the past had uh, 
done excessive force to somebody else because I would say the likelihood is high. Yeah. Why did you want to become a police officer? I didn't. (laughs) I accidentally became a police officer. Um, I wish I could say it was because I wanted to save the world and do great things in the community, but uh, they paid $5 an hour more than I was making at Florin Mall. So my whole intention was to quit the police department after I graduated from Sac State. And after about eight years, I started working as a neighborhood police officer in Strawberry Manor and teaching at Grand High School. And I decided I could do the community involvement and community engagement that I love to do as a police officer, but I never knew that was possible growing up because all I saw, you know, I was arrested at 16 and all I saw in my neighborhood was black and white squad cars driving around and either issuing tickets or arresting people um, and not stopping on the corner, talking to us kids or anything like that. So I I had no idea police officers could do those kind of jobs that I've done as as a police officer. Did you face discrimination, even racism within the department over your time and also even maybe some pushback in your own hometown of Oak Park for being an officer? Um, My core group of friends that I grew up with since like six years old are still my core group of friends. And absent, you know, probably major criminal activity, uh, it wouldn't have mattered what I chose as a profession. They'd still be my friends. Uh, And that's why they're my closest friends as as family. but yeah, I've, I, I don't think uh, there's too many people in this world in certain segments of our society that didn't uh, face discrimination in every facet of their life, in my personal life and the police department. I remember at one point I was on the sergeant's list and uh, a friend of mine was also on the sergeant's list who's African-American and somebody really high up in the police department said, we can't promote two blacks at the same time. And this was in my career. And so we still both got promoted. Um, But there's that feeling. And every time I got promoted, I was told it was solely because I was black is the reason I got promoted, which is interesting because I was the only black captain. I thought there would be more black captains if all it took was to be black. Um, So, yeah, there's there's ignorant people everywhere you go, no matter what you do. And you still have to persevere through that, do the right thing. And I always tell young kids, if you don't like the way your organization operates or some of the things it does, be successful and get into a position where you call the shots. And so ultimately, that's what I did. I became the first African-American police officer and police chief in Roseville and the first African-American police chief here. So now it was on me. If I didn't like something, then I could change it. Well, tell us about your new role at American River College. Oh, uh, so I'm the dean over the Public Safety Center at at American River College, which is all the administration of justice classes. There's a police academy, a fire academy, uh, a lot of classes for parole, probation, all all sorts of things uh, related to public safety. Going back to our conversation, the reason why you're here, you're talking about things that are so nuanced and the it's a community issue from what I'm getting from you. What is the biggest improvement we as a community can can make to prevent deaths like Tyree Nichols from happening? I think the first, the core of everything we do is we have to know the truth. We have to know the truth of how we got to the current environment that we're in. And I can tell you, uh, I would say 90 plus percent of us do not. So I teach, uh, I call it a way forward where I teach history of how we got here. And We're in this state of California where we've been led to believe and we've been taught in schools that we're different than a lot of the other country. Specifically, we're different than the South, 
right? We we are kind of like this utopia for for the United States. This is what we want to be. But the reality is, is pretty much everything the South did, we did too in California. We had slavery right here in Sacramento. We had slavery. Um, we had discrimination. We and when we talk about urban renewal, that's you know the roots in uh, housing discrimination, redlining. Some of that started right here in Sacramento in terms of tax increment financing and how we tore down the minority neighborhoods and forced minorities into certain neighborhoods that were impoverished, that have lack of opportunities and all those things. And we are still suffering from that today. Del Paso Heights used to be a healthy, thriving uh, middle class, upper middle class community. Oak Park, I'd never, I grew up in Oak Park my entire youth. Went to school in Oak Park my entire youth, and I was never taught the history of Oak Park. That it was didn't didn't always um, it wasn't always an impoverished community. It was the first suburb of Sacramento. It had an amusement park in the park. Well, I never knew that. I I always thought Oak Park was the way it was when I lived there, and so. <clears throat> I think the first thing we have to do is understand how we got here. Because if you're going to fix something, like if you go to the doctor and you have an ailment, that doctor is asking you all sorts of questions. The history, your history, your parents' history, um, you know, how do you eat? What do you do? Because they're trying to get to the root of what's causing your ailments. And when it comes to these issues, we don't try to do that. We don't have no interest in doing that. We just come up with solutions that I'm thinking because I've researched the history. I'm like, we've tried that before. Mm-hmm. We've tried that before. That doesn't hit to the root of the of the issue. And so we're going to keep going in the cycle. And then we get away with it by saying that we're in unprecedented times. We are not in unprecedented times. Finally. Do you see your role involving, evolving into perhaps elected office? I mean, you have been a police chief. You're a Sacramento native. You're raised in Oak Park. You have a career serving the community as an officer. You're now educating students at American River College. I mean, do you see this evolving into perhaps a local office role, maybe mayor in 2024? Is that attractive uh, to you? I can guarantee you it won't be mayor in 2024. <laughs> uh, I'm still detoxing from politics. Um, but I will say this. I, I would not ever rule anything out. If I feel like there's a right opportunity in some sort of elected office at whatever level that my experiences and whatever skills I bring to the table can help move us forward in a in a real manner instead of just to make people feel comfortable for a little bit, then I would at least consider it. But none of those opportunities have come up as of yet. Daniel, thank you so much for joining thank us. You. That is former Sacramento Police Chief Daniel Hahn, who is now the dean of the Public Safety Center at American River College. We're going to continue this conversation in just a moment. You're listening to Insight on your NPR station, Cap Radio. I'm Vicki Gonzalez. Welcome back to Insight on Cap Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. If you're just joining us, I was talking with former Sacramento Police Chief Daniel Hahn about Tyree Nichols and the culture, practices, and policy of law enforcement. We're going to continue this conversation with Keon Gilbert, an associate professor at the St. Louis University College for Public Health and Social Justice and a fellow at the Brookings Institution. Good morning, Keon. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me, Vicki. You know, with your lens of research shaping policies, how should we think about the deadly police encounter of Tyree Nichols with Memphis police? So I think there's a few things to think about that um, the, the case with Tyree Nichols helps us to understand. 
one, it sort of further documents, um, you know, what happens when bad policing occurs and sort of the systemic issues that we've been discussing for, for quite a while um, that exist in police culture, uh, police dynamics, um, <clears throat> the ways that police officers interact with communities, and um, even as the, uh, the previous guest noted, sort of the multiple layers of failure that occurred in this particular case where, where there were was very um, a lack of supervision, a number of people standing by and just watching um, these officers enact these these this vicious attack against against him. And so this bystander effect or this sort of group think, um, you know, mentality where no one was intervening to help. So there's a lot to unpack with this particular case. Also, even the issues related to race, the race of the officers and the race of the victim. You co-wrote a paper on how neighborhoods matter in fatal interactions between police and men of color. And in your abstract uh, of the of the paper that you co-wrote, you lead with death by legal intervention is a health outcome disproportionately experienced by boys and men of color. This was published in 2018. What has changed since it published and what is still relevant today? Yeah, so one of the things that we try to think about in that particular article and some other work that, that I've published is, so um, black men and, and men of color um, are two to three times, and in some cases even more um, likely to be victims of police, um, police brutality, police violence, injury, and, and death. And what happens is when we sort of start to unpack um, some factors that contribute to that, we wanted to really sort of think about sort of what are a couple of contextual factors? What are things that may be contributing to to these things? And so I think the Memphis case helps us to understand a few of these things. And so this particular specialized unit was deployed um, largely to high crime areas. And they, these areas also being highly concentrated with lower income individuals, lower income residents, and um, more highly concentrated um, to be black. This happens across the country where we, where there's a targeting of these types of resources in um, predominantly black and predominantly lower income neighborhoods. And the thought is, is that these neighborhoods and communities um, are high in crime as a result of people um, either having, um, being unemployed or underemployed in a number of ways, but these are also communities that have been systematically disinvested in. What the challenge is, is that we've deployed these resources in terms of policing these, um, the, these, um, these number of relationships and these factors, but we've not really systematically reinvested in these neighborhoods to ensure that people have access to high quality jobs, high quality schools. And so we're not addressing the, the root causes. We're only sort of addressing these sort of superficial things or outcomes as, as it relates to um, these neighborhood factors and characteristics. So the intention of like hotspot policing falls short and isn't effective because that's not the right solution that should be applied. It, it's more of a Band-Aid solution to a deeper rooted problem. Absolutely. It, it's a really sort of superficial fix to some of these issues where we recognize that addressing poverty or fixing schools are much harder things to do. But in fact, they are the right things to do in the better investment um, in communities across the country, whether that's at 
when we think about um, local policy, county, and even state and federal policies. And so we really fail neighborhoods and communities when we only think about policing people. And also we don't recognize that there are spillover effects as a, that result from you know hyper-policing in these neighborhoods where people experience high levels of community trauma. Um, it, there's increases in both mental and physical health. Um, as a result of these these activities when policing is um, both sort of very vicious and brutal in, in these examples. You touched upon race, given that the officers charged are, are black officers and other officers of color have been involved in deadly police encounters that have been called into question, especially in recent years, now that we have body camera footage and cell phone footage. What role do you believe diversity has in law enforcement? It's a great question. And so you know, when you live in black neighborhoods and black communities um, and either other communities of color, those residents will tell you that it's not just white officers or non-black officers that are involved in police brutality, police violence. And so the, the you know, having body cameras helps to document this a little bit and corroborate and verify um, community residents' claims and complaints before. And so this is helpful in, in, in a couple of different ways with recognizing that increasing the diversity of um, police agencies doesn't necessarily decrease police violence. And your previous guests also talked about this. And our work in in a couple of uh, different places also further documents that the increase of diversity sometimes leads to increasing the odds that especially men of color will experience police violence. And part of that is sort of really thinking about what is the what what's are the systemic issues related to police culture, the ways that police officers are trained, and also recognizing that we really haven't empowered police officers who who may represent or reflect certain demographic characteristics of, of particular neighborhoods to really be able to intervene in very important ways in these types of incidents. And so the idea of having a quote unquote, diverse representation of police officers doesn't necessarily always translate into the type of community policing or the improvement in better relationships that we hope to see. And I think this this example helps to um, document and show that. And it goes back to some of the other issues I mentioned before in terms of thinking about what are the roles of police in, in particular um, neighborhoods that are highly concentrated black and lower income. Yeah, I mean, what you're talking about are generational issues. I mean, I think about Rodney King in 1991. That was more than 30 years ago. And although there are key differences in what happened, the outcome does involve brutal, excessive force of an unarmed black man and multiple officers against one. Um, And you're with your lens as well as a researcher, a professor wanting to shape policy. What is the biggest thing we can do to prevent things like this from happening again? Yeah, so we really need to rethink the role of police officers in in public safety and sort of what's the that continuum of public safety you know i think this case also highlights not only a number of failures but a number of other entities and agencies that failed tyree nichols you have not only the police but you also have emergency response um individuals um at the same place and no one intervening and, and helping um, Memphis is a great example, as well as other places where they have started to implement um, other training that helps people, to, helps officers to understand different types of intoxication, whether it's alcohol or whether it's from marijuana. And also they have um, a number of task force that 
help to intervene when there when there is sort of very clear someone um, having a mental health episode. And so we've implemented some of these in different places across the country. It's not been sort of unilateral, universal. So that helps in, in some ways um, in terms of reducing police interactions in, in the, some of those cases or pairing police officers with mental health um, professionals, social workers, et cetera, so that they respond to those particular cases. That's an example. The other types of things that, of course, people automatically focus on are police training. And in some of some of the work of some of my colleagues at, at, at Brookings, um, in particular, Rayshawn Ray, who's at Brookings and the University of Maryland, his work has shown that bias exists in, um, in officers sort of writ large across the board and the ways that they respond in particular to um, to, to people who are black, whether whether it's at traffic stops or other other types of um, police encounters, that that bias comes into play and they behave in, the, in very similar ways, as we've seen in this in the case of Tyree Nichols. And so training is not enough. Um, we really sort of have to dig deeper into the role of public safety, the behaviors of police officers, and also um, some of the reforms that have happened in the past mm -hmm. have sort of structured or focused on um, why police sort of interact with with, um, with individuals. And so your previous guest talked about, um, he talked about traffic fines or traffic, traffic stops as a source of revenue. Well, there's been some evidence right. that shows And Keon, that we have to leave it at that. We are wrapping up. Okay. <laughs> this is just the tip of the iceberg, a very important conversation. Keon Gilbert is an associate professor with St. Louis University College for Public Health and Social Justice. He's also a fellow at the Brookings Institution. And I'm Vicki Gonzalez. Have a great day.